Hey guys, welcome to episode 23 of Small Talkers of the Podcast, the at-home series. I am here with Leanna Hawkins. She's the founder of Black Hawk Financial, the author of the best-selling book, Young, Fun, and Financially Free. She has over 12 years of consulting experience working alongside companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and many others. She's also been featured on CNBC, Bloomberg, Yahoo Finance, just to name a few. And I got to say, I got to keep it real with the people right now. This is the second time we're recording this. I feel like our <laughs> lives now are just, we're just I think, much calmer now. We already know each other. Um, she's a total babe and a badass. And I'm excited to talk again. But hi, Liana. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. Again. Uh, no, but we're excited to get into it. I love what we talked about before. So we're going to talk about the same stuff. But Let's talk about quarantine life. Like, how has everything been going? I know you just took your dog out for a walk now, but... Yes. Um, We're chilling. Yeah, it's just my dog and I. We moved to New York um, about a year ago last summer. So it's a real, like, you know, kick into the (laughs) New York life. It went up really fast and it slowed down even faster. Um, What's your favorite part about New York, by the way? You can just like name it. Oh, Central Park. Like when I first moved here last summer, all my friends, everybody lives downtown. They're all like, why do you want to live in Central Park South? That's like all the co-ops, all the old people. And, um, I don't know. It's just so like, magical New York here, like the multiple doormen and like everyone is just so like, it's so old school. And whenever I was just a visitor, like I've been coming back and forth from Vancouver where I grew up, where I was for the last five or six years since I finished my last full-time job in London. And I was starting my business there, coming back and forth to LA and New York a lot. And every single day I was in New York, I used to go running in Central Park. And it's just, I think people, and even now that I live here, people I find still like definitely don't take advantage of it as much as they should. But that's actually kind of a nice thing to see with COVID is that the park is like a summer weekend day, like a lot of days, especially on the weekends here, it's so busy. And I think people really are remembering, like, we have this beautiful, insane, crazy thing right in the middle of the city that people kind of forgot about. For sure. I used to love, I used to live right um, on the Upper West Side, like, two minutes away from Central Park. And my favorite thing to do on the weekends was, like, literally just people watch. I would grab a blanket, sit down, and just, like, stare at people. It was, like, my favorite thing to do. Yeah, Um, it's so nice. Like, if you are in New York, and I don't know when you're going to be releasing this um, episode, but you know, if you can walk, even if it's like a half hour walk to get to the park and just bring a blanket and a book, like that's just so good for your mind and your energy right now during COVID. If you're self-isolating by yourself or with a partner or roommate or whoever, and just go lay out, get your feet in the ground, do a grounding exercise, get some fresh air and read. Like it's just so good for you. Oh no, it's totally therapeutic. So you're, I know we talked about this before we started, but you're in between the city and the Hamptons right now. Yeah. So I decided uh, a couple of weeks ago that it had been, I think it had been my 50th day by myself in the apartment here with my dog. And I was just getting kind of groundhog day weirdness about it. And um, I just decided to rent a place out of Montauk and we rented the same place for Christmas this past year. Um, for a bit because we couldn't get back to Canada to visit family and stuff in Vancouver where yeah. most of them are. So yeah, I kind of, I knew the space already and I knew, you know, I'd have to like sanitize the light switches and door handles and everything, but I do that in my own apartment every day anyway. And yeah, we're just still um, out there by ourselves. I came back into the city to do some media today, but um, 
yeah, it's been, it's been a really nice break to have the beach to run around on with the dog and the sunsets. It's like, I'm just so lucky and, um, yeah, l- lucky that I'm uh, financially free enough to be able to afford to do it yes. and um, invest in my mindset to get a little bit of clarity and a break out by the ocean. Oh, for sure. And a couple of glasses of wine doesn't hurt either. Um, oh, yeah. But- wine at sunset on the beach by myself. I don't care. It's, it's all good. The best. No, my favorite place in the summer, I always go out to Montauk and I love going to, um, I'm forgetting the name of the restaurant right now. It's literally right at the end. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's mm-hmm. like on the beach. Yes. I, d- I don't know. I it depends whole- on what side you're on. Okay. No, I have a whole list of places, but that, that is the best place to be in the summer. And if you're in New York, in my opinion, is Montauk. It's like a very it's beachy so nice. town. I prefer, I prefer it to the Hamptons because Hamptons yeah. is a different vibe, but yeah, we've been kind of driving around doing different trails and stuff, which as I told you earlier, is a whole other story, tick bites and pers- medication that did not fit, sit well with me. Right. Um, but anyway, it was, it's still worth it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you have a super cool story. So just let's go into it. Like, especially talking about how much you traveled when you like were starting your business, talk mm-hmm. about where you grew up, your story, what you study in college, all that. Yeah, so I grew up in Canada, in Vancouver on the West Coast, um, spent lots of time between California and Vancouver. I went to college in Toronto, Ontario, so other side of the country, um, like, you know, New York, Canada's New York, basically is Toronto, a little baby New York of the North, and um, spent a few years there. I actually spent my third year of college back in Vancouver because I wanted to get a job in the stock market. So I found one on Craigslist, applied for this office manager slash investor relations job and uh, no experience. I was going to business school, but I just really wanted to get a job. And um, college. Um, that was my third year of college. So I was doing I was doing my courses online at work when I wasn't busy. And um, and then I actually had to go back to Toronto for college for my last year because not all my finance courses were available online. But yeah, I mean, I was out there like ready to work in the industry like by, you know, 10th grade. So, <laughs> so I kind of sped through everything in life. I graduated high school early and graduated college. Um, while working in the industry and yeah, just really found a a liking and a love for finance and investing. And I loved watching the hype in the media of CNBC and the markets every day up and down. And, um, after that I graduated and I worked like in a whole bunch of different cities and countries. Like I lived in France, London, California, worked in Chicago, New York, Toronto. After the same company or you were, you moved from Go, like all, all different kinds of opportunities. One of the things that's kind of funny, I think like when you're in your twenties or at any age, people always say like, you should never have less than two years on your resume with one job. I'm like, I'm sorry. I I, like, I kept on getting better offer after better offer promotions um, opportunities in different places. And I was at a new job, like pretty much every 18 months, if wow. not every 12 months in my twenties. And you know, that's something that I, yeah, I definitely don't regret. I learned more of what I don't want to do in my twenties than what I do want to do. Like sort of my later twenties, I learned the things that I really love doing. Like after I wrote a book when I was 29 and which you mentioned, Young, Fun, and Financially Free. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of gave me a whole slew of opportunities here in New York with media and my management team and publicist and agent, like everyone, my whole team was here. So I kind of ended up making the leap 
uh, about a year ago now um, to move to the US officially rather than just coming back and forth between uh, clients and meetings. And um, yeah, so I've kind of been all over the place and I love traveling. I still love traveling, but uh, I don't have to live on a plane anymore as I used to now that I'm centered in New York. I also love that you were taking the opportunities that were better. I think a lot of people get complacent and they're almost afraid to take that leap or maybe they're afraid to ask for more. Um, and I think that's really cool that you just decided, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And like you, you already sound like you knew your worth right from like the get go. So like, that's <laughs> awesome that like you kind of kept that going and it's well, like, I, I never knew exactly what it was. I always just knew I wanted more. <laughs> yeah, no, And the thing is a lot of people don't, uh, I feel a lot of people are scared to ask for more. And I feel like that's the most important thing. Just you have to ask. So um, yeah. there's no, there's no free money. There's almost no free raises. Like most budgets, no matter who your manager is, most of the time will never just give you a raise without you asking for it because mm-hmm. they can use that budget somewhere else. You have to, especially as women, like that's a really, really big thing that typically in finances, women struggle with is asking for more flexible time scheduling. If you have a family asking for a raise, asking for a promotion, proving why you deserve a promotion over your male counterpart, things like that. Um, I've doubled my salary and my income four times in my twenties. So it's like, it's definitely possible and absolutely go after the jobs that you're not qualified for. I believe, yes, every single job I've ever gotten, even as an entrepreneur, I was not qualified for every single one. And I'm not kidding. Like even like my first job at a college, like I, I was a financial advisor. I had no idea what I was doing, but I got the licenses. Basically she wanted me to sell life insurance and deal with life insurance policies, which was a big thing for a woman who was an advisor that had, that she was a baby boomer herself most of her clients were like our grandparents' age. So she was selling a lot of life insurance policies, which is big commissions. And I was like writing out three of these things a day while I was still doing my licensing on the side. You could um, do that as you went. Like you just were figuring yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was making all the commission. I was making the worst salary you've ever heard of, which I write about in my book. But even throughout all this time, I managed to save up enough money to buy my first apartment in downtown Vancouver, which is very expensive. It's like similar to Hollywood LA prices. So it was expensive, but I managed to do it. And again, people ask me all the time, like, how did you do that? How do you have that kind of lifestyle? How I was like, when I was younger too, I was a lot more free giving with my money than I am now. I used to like take my girlfriends on trips to LA, to Chicago. I would like buy their flights and stuff and be like, let's just go. You were that friend. You were that friend. I was, but I'm not anymore. (laughs) I'm kidding. I am sometimes, you know, actually I had this dream that, well, not really a dream. I want to do it. I still might do it this year, but, um, I sometimes, yeah, I'm, I'm getting more frugal as I get older with some things. I was like, I want to be, you know, I'm not that girl who has had, you know, wealthy boyfriends that like just take them all over the world or buy them bags or shoes. Like that's legit. Never. I've, you know, I've dated successful guys, but I've never been like that kind of a relationship, which is fine if you get it. I mean, if some guy bought me a bag, I'd probably take it, but that's never been like what I've been into and with private jets. So I always, I have lots of girlfriends that are like models and like they end up on private jets just for like whatever. And I'm like, you know, I've never been on a PJ, but the first time I want to go on one, I want it to be my PJ. So I've looked into like, yeah, I've looked into a lot of actual like jet services in the last couple of years. And then I've looked up, like, it's not that much. I mean, 
relatively. It's a lot of money, but I can get a private jet for like 10 grand to take me and eight girlfriends from Vancouver to LA or like New York to Miami. I'm like, I would totally do that for my birthday and I would be a badass bitch. Like, <laughs> I totally want to do it. So I anyway. I love it. When was your, when's your birthday? <laughs> why, why are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm inviting myself actually. No, nope, hey, you, you stay in my good books and you're getting on the PJ. <laughs> it's actually conveniently it's september 2nd so it's almost always on labor day long weekend which is amazing no that's amazing but i i love your energy i'm the same exact way i have friends that like will actually specifically go after guys that are like wealthier and like to me i i do find it attractive when guys are successful and like or have their own thing going on but i also like i need something that's like mine like when i wake up in the morning like no one can take that away from me that's mine and making your own money is so satisfying so i feel you on that yeah um, so it might be a big blowout it might be a waste of a waste of 10 grand in some people's eyes but at least I can say you know what I did it it was mine and no yeah no one can take that away absolutely um so your love for finance because your parents I believe are not in finance so I had nothing to do with that so where did that I where did that love stem from yeah I mean my mom's a grade one teacher my dad is a mechanical engineer um, I, I have, you know, influential people in my life. Like my dad is a, is an entrepreneur in engineering. My uncle is a very successful entrepreneur, um, real estate developer. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. So there's a lot of entrepreneurs in my family, which kind of, I think always drove me to just run at my own pace, you know, work hard, finish things quickly, move on, make more money, move on, um, and be okay with, you know, doing things that way. Specifically in finance, I got really interested in it when I was in high school. I started watching CNBC um, just after school or just kind of randomly being like, oh, this is so exciting. And all these people are so wealthy. Like, what are they doing? And then when I was, I was in business school in, in college and there was a small group of guys that I had known in high school and been friendly with in high school. They were about four years older and they had just graduated school. And so I started talking to them like, oh, what are you guys up to now? And they were all like living in, some of them were living in this penthouse together and they all had Porsches, Ferraris, like amazing cars. And I was like, you guys are 22. <laughs> Who are, what bank are you robbing or what weapons are you smuggling? And, um, and they were like, oh, we're day trading and it's not such a big thing anymore. Now you've probably heard of like high frequency trading and Mm -hmm. the computers and algorithms like have kind of taken over a lot of the space where, um, day traders used to be able to make money. So not a lot of people are successful at doing that anymore, nor were they ever. It's always been such a hard thing to do. And they probably lost their shirts many times, but optically they looked very successful. And I was young and I was like, okay, this is cool. Like I want to, I want to be like them. So rather than day trading, they just generally taught me about, you know, check out what stocks are and balance sheets and some of the things I was learning in school, but not really. Like in school, you learn more the accounting side and the company side. They don't teach you like how to invest in stocks, Mm. but they teach you about the industry in general. So I didn't find a lot of what was in school very applicable to the investing world or definitely not personal finance. Like they don't teach you like the personal side of money um, that you need to learn to be good with money. And a lot of people in finance are really shitty with money and they spend too much and they think that they are like the be all end all. And a lot of them have big egos and they spend money that way. And they just, you know, they shouldn't be because they're not saving and investing enough. But 
it's another story. I'll, I'll rag on my own industry at another time. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, they taught me, they said, start watching this show. There was this, this guy, he's still on TV every day at six o'clock Eastern three Pacific. It's called mad money with Jim Cramer. He's loud, outgoing, crazy. Some people hate him. I love him. And I think he's a really good teacher and a lot of other people agree and um, he makes it kind of exciting. And so that's what these guys suggested. They're like, watch this new show. It's called Jim, Jim Cramer, Mad Money. It started like 13 years ago, 12 years ago now. And yeah, I started watching that every day at three o'clock Pacific time, had a little black notebook like this one. I've had like 12 of these notebooks, like pretty much one every year. And I just write down, I was writing down different vocabulary, like price earnings ratio, stock, equity bond like I was writing down the basics and looking them up afterward and creating little lists of like you know buy coca-cola buy disney um they they say like I was writing a note like um zoom not zoom is like I think maybe DocuSign had started like way 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 back then and um apple like I wish I hadn't sold my apple stock five years ago but I was in there when apple was like forty dollars and yeah. So anyway, I started out that way, pretty much getting interested through the media and through friends, guys that I saw in finance that were successful and had a great lifestyle. And I wanted that too. Have you felt like you definitely felt a difference as a woman in the industry because finance is typically more male dominated. So how has that impacted you just being a woman? Yeah. I mean, and it definitely was more so that way when I first started, um, the industry, especially now being in New York and being like 10 years, 13 years older than when I started, um, there's a lot more women in the industry that I see now. Um, and because also in New York, the offices, the companies are just so much bigger that they don't just have those like, you know, in on the West coast, there's a lot more male dominant. I mean, it still is here, but just, there's more women here because of the nature of the size of the offices. There's just more women. There's the marketing departments are here and all that. And um, I love that. There's also some really cool associations like 100 Women in Finance, Women in um, FinTech and Hedge Funds. Like there's all these women's financial groups that I've always been involved in and I love. But generally, I mean, I get asked the question a lot on, you know, whether it's like national television or podcasts. Otherwise, people always say like, oh, you know, it must have been really difficult and a challenge to grow up in such a male dominated industry. I'm like, are you kidding? Like I had a seat at the dinner table any day I wanted. Like, <laughs> okay. So you were just like an equal then. Oh yeah. I mean, okay. ultimately I'll never know what opportunities or what salary levels I was held back from because I was a woman. Um, and I talk obviously the way I'm speaking with you is like so much more candidly than when I walk into a meeting, right. I have a bit more of a, um, stiffer upper lip and all those types of things. But, you know, I, I was always welcome at events and that's because they also liked the diversity. I mean, I have to say nobody ever complained if a young, attractive woman from the industry, as long as she's professional and can speak professionally, nobody complained about the diversity coming to a very high end dinner meeting or a networking session. They, they welcomed having, you know, different types of people and a, a young, attractive woman. I yeah. mean, it's stereotypical, but you got an invite. For sure. That makes sense to me. My, my question is like, do you feel like you had to like work harder to like almost prove yourself? Like I can hang with the boys or like it was, that was never an issue for you. No, I just liked hanging with the boys. So that wasn't hard at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've always just been pretty chill, like hanging out with guys. And I grew up 
as a competitive athlete and skiing. So I've always been like on trips with guys. I'm like, I don't know. I've always gotten along with the guys and I'm definitely a girly girl too, but I'm not, I am strong. I grew up being strong through like, you know, diverse kind of situations and things that happened in my own family to, yeah, training as an athlete and having to respect my coaches and teammates and, you know, playing kind of adult roles like that since I was young. So I never had issue um, working with all men. And I liked being the youngest. I liked being the only woman in the room, again, because in any business, any job you're going out for, it's what is your differentiating factor? What makes you different? and What makes you more interesting? And I always had that. That's a cool perspective. And I'm all, I feel like I'm learning more about you because we're super similar. I was a competitive gymnast like my entire life. So like that mentality of like always being on and just, I relate to you very much so. Um, <laughs> your company, let's talk about it because how did the birth of it begin? It's, you're very successful. How did, just how did it start? So I had moved back from my last full-time um, job working for someone else in, in finance or otherwise, in London uh, six years ago. So 2013, um, almost seven years ago, actually. It was six years ago. I actually started the company in 2014. But I came back in 2013, and I believe I was 26 then. And I ended up coming to New York to be a finalist on The Apprentice, which it didn't end up working out, but nonetheless, very interesting, very valuable experience, super cool, and kind of like my, my little girl dreams, um, one of my little girl dreams moments, like watching Bill Rancic and like the original apprentice people doing entrepreneurs doing on the ground competition business in New York. I thought that was so cool. So I was really excited to do that. Sorry. Did you audition for it? Yeah. I had to come to New York to audition for it. And then they decided they were only going to do celebrity apprentice and then they asked me to do another show that was going to be on the E network and shot in Beverly Hills, but it was like definitely not a business competition in New York. So I said no. But um, yeah, but I still got to meet, you know, I went up to the desk at uh, Trump Tower and, you know, I have a 12 o'clock meeting with Mr. Trump. It was very, uh, it was a very big day. This was obviously way before his political days and all that, but it was a, a super, you know, no matter what anybody thinks about him politically. Uh, I have no opinion because I'm a Canadian. I can't even vote. But um, it was a really, it was a really cool day. Just to, you know, as a, a young girl in business, um, to have that experience. So anyway, um, did that, and then I also I got offered a job in New York as an oil broker, um, which was also going to be very high demand and interesting. And that didn't work out. That company got acquired after a few weeks. So my first year, kind of moving from. London working full-time back to North America, it was a whole bunch of searching, like interviews in LA, New York, this apprentice thing, the the oil brokering job. And eventually, yeah, I was back in Vancouver again. None of those things had had panned out the way I thought they would. And someone called me up and said they had a friend who had a new fund and a product out of Chicago and they needed marketing and distribution for it. And would I be interested in doing it as like a contractor, as a consultant? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, that means I can work in my robe every day and travel to Chicago once a month, do whatever I want. And, and like the salary and stuff, the commission was amazing. So I was like, uh, yeah. Um, and I love Chicago too. So I was excited to to go visit Chicago and yeah, so that's, yeah. So they, they were out of Chicago and I was still then out of Vancouver. So I, you know, I wasn't going to have to go to an office every day, you know, in London, it was like 
crazy hours. I was only allowed to wear blue and white shirts, like a boy. And it was like super, super stiff work environment. So I was really happy to just have, you know, more money than I was making in London, but I get to do it from home. So, and then because of that, it was like, oh, you should start a corporation because then you get better tax benefits. So I started a business and then I got more clients and that was sort of the evolution. It was pretty natural. And it was, yeah, really natural out of the fact that I felt sadly to say at 26, I was kind of burnt out and I'd been living out of the country for a really long time. And I was just so excited to be able to work on my own, on my own schedule as, you know, as I mentioned, some of the other men in my family had done. And it just happened naturally. So I'm so lucky for that. Do you have a team or it's just you? Um, I've had a team in the past right now, like since I've just recently transitioned to New York and I'm doing more work on the public side, that's kind of how I have like that public team now. Um, But for my consulting work on, on my private Blackhawk financial work, I only have a few contractors right now. Um, but no full-time employees. Yeah. Um, well, it's a, it's a lot, honestly, for one person. I'm, I'm like questioning how you're doing it all, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's cool. So then in 2017, you wrote your book. Um, how did that kind of come to fruition? I know that it's like kind of focused or geared towards like millennials, but how did that Yeah. I mean, I've had everyone like 20s to 40s read the book. I've had people in their 50s read the book and leave reviews on Amazon and they're like, there's stuff in here that I never knew. And it's for sure, it's true. Like, I mean, even writing the book, I had to do some research, like, especially for the debt chapter on student loan debt. Like I had four jobs during school and I had a quarter life crisis. <laughs> some people talk about, I had like an actual mental breakdown because I was working so many jobs and I wasn't sleeping. And my parents helped with part of school, but they didn't do all of it. And not because they couldn't, they could have, but they wanted me to be investing in myself and know the value of the education that I was given. Right. And, um, and yeah, so I worked really hard. I didn't have any student loan debt and started saving up for that first down payment right out of school with my very poorly paying financial advisor job. But it was spring 2009. Again, it was like, it was basically like right now, 11, was that 11 years ago? Yeah. 11 years ago, 2020 to 20, 2009. Yeah. Like 11, 12, yeah. You can be a financial expert and you can be really bad at simple math, which I am an example of. (laughs) So basically it would be like trying to get a job in finance right now. Um, But it was actually even worse back then. So anyway, poorly paying job, but um, it all worked out. And I actually forget your original question. No, it was your book. It was just talking about how- My book, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, exactly. Debt. I had to do a little bit of research to write in the book on student loan debt because I'd never been in that situation before. And the book is written in both Canadian and U.S. terminology. So it's just like everything in there will say, you know, GIC, Guaranteed Income Certificate Bracket Canada, CD Bracket U.S. So because there's, you know, and in in the U.S. it's called 401k. In Canada, it's called RRSP. Um, in terms of the registered uh, like retirement account. So I included both because I know obviously I have a big audience in Canada, but I even have a much bigger audience in the US. But because I'm from Canada, people probably expect the book to have that terminology in it too. So anyway, I had to do a bunch of research for the book on different things. So even older people are learning things from the book. I learned things from writing the book. And it was, I had a client of mine 
that had a daughter going to college and she was spending so much money on his credit card on Sephora. And he and some other people were like, you should write a book for young people because you are really, really good at this stuff and you're so good with money and investing, but you're approachable and you make it easy to understand. And it's really chill. Like it's not like a book that your dad gave you that he read when he was 21 years old. Like it's a lot more modern and, you know, easy to get through. It's a three to four hour read. Most of, most of the people have read it say, and a two hour or two hour, two pages of like Cole's notes. I call it my two cents at the back of every chapter. If you don't even want to read the whole chapter, which probably takes half an hour. So it's really easy read. And again, I knew it would be a great marketing exercise. No use in denying that hundred percent of the proceeds go to charity. Um, the we foundation for income opportunities and economic stability for people in developing countries. So all around, I just thought it was like a really cool project that a client had suggested to me and actually introduced me to a publisher always about who you know, not what you know. You can always learn what you need to know later. Like I say, with all the jobs I've gone to, never been qualified, but follow up, follow up, follow up, knock on doors, get good referrals, get reference letters from people that know you will do what it takes to get the job done. And then, yeah, get it done. I love that you said it's an easy read because like when people think of finance books, they think of like the most boring things ever, takes hours to understand. So the fact that you can literally read this in like what you said, three to four hours um, is super cool to me. So um, most people read it in like a day or two. And even my, my friends, like, I feel bad. I don't want to call out like my model and actress friends because they're not stupid. Actually, they're smarter than most of most of a lot of people I know. But um, but they're they're like it's like one of them's like it's like reading your Netflix series in a book because it's a lot of stories about you know myself. Um, I've met Steve Harvey through the financial world, and he was homeless till he was almost forty. So I included his little story of his you know comedic career and his book or sorry his his life in my book. And, you know, other people as well that I've either influenced their life or they've influenced mine. And, uh, yeah, so it's a lot of story incorporated and jokes and like funny quotes and they, yeah, like you mentioned before the, um, notorious B.I.G. Yeah. B-I-G. yeah. <laughs> more money, more problems. And I say <laughs> it's not. Yes. Yeah. You can do a lot with, with more resources. And I think, yeah, no one should be afraid of going out and getting that raise starting a side hustle, starting your own business or your own idea, because the more money you have, the more you can do to help other other people and solve more problems. And yeah, there's, there's no shame in, in making more money. Right. It's just being smarter with your money and knowing how to properly invest it. Uh, Yeah. I I believe the last time we recorded, I mentioned strippers and bottles at the club, but that's where you get the problems. (laughs) Right. That's so true. Yeah. Um, and I guess like kind of leading to that, what is the biggest problem you see among like young people when it comes to like how they, you know, how they spend their money? Well, in New York specifically, it's the drinks and the dinners, man. Like, oh my gosh, it is so expensive here. It's, it's unreal. Big like I usually, dollars. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like even myself um, and my friends even know this about me, which is so funny because it's not like I don't have the money for it now, but I just don't even care that much about doing the whole dinner thing. It's like another two and a half hours and it's so hard to get reservations, blah, blah, blah. I'm like a lot of the time. And if I'm busy doing other stuff during the day, I just don't feel like sitting there and I'm a really healthy eater as well. I like to you know, make my own stuff at home. I'm not that fussed over like fancy dinners with like 
crazy amounts of ingredients. That's all unhealthy, rich stuff. Anyway, I don't feel that great eating it. So going out to spend like $200 on that part of the night, I don't usually do it unless it's someone's birthday. I'll just meet up with them for drinks after and I'll, I'll spend my money on drinks. Um, I prefer that over doing like, yeah, the full dinner ordeal, like once or twice every weekend. I don't need to do that every Friday, Saturday night. So spending is a big thing. And, and also just in terms of getting ahead, like, um, is actual net worth, Like you need to invest your money in things that are going to build your net worth, like investing. So unfortunately, you know, we all want to do Tulum yoga trips and we all want to do Europe and we all want to go to Yacht Week, but you can't do all the things as people say Like you have to choose because I would rather do more of all the things for the rest of my life and in my future than kind of like half-heartedly kind of shittily do them with like a big group of people in my twenties because I'm also a four to five star minimum biatch. So I do things right. I always get a deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're like, you got to introduce me to your mom. I got to get like the Jewish secrets on deals because I'm not Jewish, but it sounds like we need to have like a weekend at what are the outlets called in Jersey? I went to them in um, Florida too. The outlooks the outlet there's like an outlet oh, yes, mall yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a few of them they're the best it's like yeah the best yeah it's when nice. I moved here I needed to get like a really warm coat and so oh, like I went to Miami in November and I was like all I need to do on this trip I have to go to that outlet mall with Montclair in it so I could get a Montclair oh. and I actually got one for like 35% off and it's just a black shiny like a-line puffer it's like it was a good deal I love what you also talked about before, how you were saying that everyone should put away like every paycheck. Like, I think you said what, a hundred, $200 every two weeks or something like that. Yeah. And that totally depends on obviously the number amount, how much money you make, but it's the same goes in personal finance is you have to pay yourself first. So again, on, on people making mistakes is they often will spend their money or like decide what their expenses are going to be and put it on their credit cards. And then at the end of the month, they pay off those things, they pay their rent and whatever. And then they're like, okay, any money I have in left, I'm going to invest that this month. The chances are you will probably not have anything left if you play it that way. So you have to pay yourself first. Act as if you're giving yourself a salary from your own salary after you pay taxes and everything that's withheld from your employer. Mm-hmm. And just determine that you're going to give yourself $50 a paycheck, $100 a paycheck, whatever you want to pay yourself and set up an automatic deposit from your Chase City Bank of America account where your direct deposit for your job goes into or where your client money goes into and automatically set it up so it takes the money from there and puts it in your Fidelity brokerage account or your Robinhood account or your robo if you're using it, you want to use a robo advisor and not have to manage any of your investments right. set up a betterment or wealth simple account and make it automatic because in the history of investing in the stock market if you miss like the the 12 biggest days of rebounds and rallies in the market over the last 50 years those 12 days alone makes up more than like half of the returns so that's why it's really important to be consistent and always doing it because otherwise you're going to miss the big days and um and every little bit of money counts it's also one of those things where it's like it becomes a habit it's a lot easier to start flossing every day which is something that i need to do <laughs> floss flossing every single night than than just saying i'm i'm going to floss on tuesdays and thursdays because you're probably going to forget tuesdays and thursdays so 
It's like with any habit. Yeah. And if you set it up automatically like that, that's the best way to do it. Set it up for the day after your direct deposit day and always have that going in. And it's another thing too, in terms of the compounding um, of interest and returns is if you do the calculation on compounding interest and returns of if you deposited to your robo account or your investment accounts once a month versus once once every two weeks, you actually make a hell of a lot more money doing it every two weeks than every month. And I just learned that like six months ago, um, someone actually illustrated the compounding calculation of that for me. And it was something like over 30 years, it was like an extra like $80,000 difference based on market returns. And I was like, what the hell? I'm like, I'm going to, I have to set up um, biweekly deposits now. So that's a little new piece that I learned recently also. For sure. And I, I know I mentioned this earlier as well, but I was talking about how when you're younger, I think also it's important to like take more risks financially. Like, you know, and I feel like I love my portfolio right now in Acorns. It's like extremely aggressive. So yeah. um, when you're younger, take those risks. But yeah. And I've always been, I mean, I'm 32 now, but I am still 100% equities, which means 100% stocks or ETFs with stocks in them. So, you know, ownership of companies versus bonds or, um, you know, other, like you can have CDs, certificates of deposit or U.S. treasuries, but those things are giving like less than 1% interest right now. So yeah, if you're young and the reason why they say that you should be aggressive when you're younger is because you have decades to like, I mean, if you're really saving this money for your retirement, um, which is decades away, you have lots of time to recover from what's happening right now when the markets during COVID-19 or if we get another financial crisis like 2008, 2009 again, you have so much time to recover. So that's why they say go for stocks, which are otherwise called equities, um, because those are where you get the best returns. So, you know, the bigger risk, bigger, bigger reward. And, um, and I also, I sold my place in Vancouver a year and a half ago. So I used to be a, a pretty good split of like real estate and equities, but now I'm just 100% equities. Yeah, kind of leading to my next question. Two-part question. One, what was your first big investment you made? And then two, how do you feel about investing right now during this time? Well, because I, I only had, I don't know, probably like $5,000 in stocks when I was 21, like when I started shopping around for apartments and stuff um, and houses in Vancouver, uh, I, I would say that, yeah, the down payment on my place that I bought was the biggest investment that I've probably ever made but it was kind of easy for me to do. And I'm, again, I'm so lucky that I was like naturally wanting to do that at that age, because the older you get, you get lifestyle creep and your lifestyle just becomes more expensive. People get nicer apartments and then your rent becomes more expensive. And as you get older with lifestyle creep, I think it's harder and harder and harder to save up a down payment, to have all that money sitting there and like not do anything with it. It takes an extremely dedicated person to save up that kind of money, which is why now like so many millennials are, and also because real estate values have gone up a lot Why so, so many millennials, you know, go to their parents for down payment loans or gifts when they get married or just, you know, at any time. And there's no shame in that either, but I am, I am really glad. I'm just such a psycho. Like even when I was getting my mortgage for my place, they were like, uh, you should get your parents. This is, this was maybe a stupid financial move, but I'm fiercely independent. But the more, my mortgage broker is like, if you get your parents to co-sign it, you get like a percentage off, like, because you uh, right now you're like a high risk 
fixed rate, but you could get a variable rate. And this was 2009 yeah. when, again, it was kind of similar to where we are now. The market was way down. Interest rates were way down. And I'd only had my job for three months. And they were like, well, yeah, you're, you know, you could get a better rate if you get your parents to co-sign. And I was like, no, I only want, like, I don't want my parents' name. This is my house. I'm like, no way. And it, you know what? At the end of the day, I was like, the interest rates are, it was so cheap. It was like, 2.75% that I took versus I could have gotten 2% if my parents co-signed. And I was like, I just don't want their name on the property. I'm screw that. So I, I'm like, I want to pay more. But anyway. Well, so I guess speaking of mortgage, like what are some of the ways that you've like built up your credit? So um, I guess there's, you know, there's sort of three major ways. Mm-hmm. Number one, for sure, is paying your bills on time, whether that's your cell phone bill, your credit card bill, um, even if you don't have all the money to pay off your entire balance of your credit card bill every month, which you really, really should. Otherwise, you shouldn't spend it. Um, or you should change your living situation, get a roommate or move home for six months and like really attack some of that debt. Um, do, you know, take big moves to get rid of that. Um, but even if you, again, if you can't for one month or however long, at least make the minimum payment. Cause if you don't pay anything, it really hurts your credit score. So payments, um, your history. So for example, like I just officially in the U S recently got a social security number. I still can't even get a credit card in the U S no way. <laughs> yeah. I'm on a secured card right now. So I gave them the money up front and then they gave me a credit card, a secured card. But again, if you have had really hard times with credit cards in the past and you can't even get them right now, like that's a way to restart is just start with secured cards um, or forget about your old accounts and just get a secured card because then it won't allow you to overspend and you know, you've already paid the card off. But that's the other thing too is, is what is your history? And yeah, the reason why I couldn't, I couldn't get a credit card is because I only had a social security number in the U.S. since summer of last year. And it usually takes at least six months to a year to really build your credit score. So right now, last fall, I checked it. Um, I usually use, there's two different websites that are great for people to check their credit and it doesn't affect your credit score. Um, Creditsesame.com, that's the one I use, and Credit Karma. They're both free. You just sign up for the website. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really easy thing to use. So I, I think I was at like 680 last fall and it was just building cause I had no credit. So it was building my credit score. And now I looked at it last month in April and I'm at like 715. So it's slowly growing, but it's so funny. It's like, whenever I'm on the phone with the bank, I'm like, I am legit in this country, like under visas, extraordinary ability for like finance. It's so funny. And for financial literacy. And I'm like, I can't even get a credit card. (laughs) (laughs) The irony is like insane. So funny. I know. Um, I'm like, come on, can't you make an exception? They're like, no. So yeah, the history, the, you know, paying off your everything on time and how much credit you have available to you. It's, it's a measure of if you have two credit cards that you have, 5,000 available in one, 5,000 available on the other, there's a certain, it's called the utilization rate. You should only ever use, and you shouldn't really go below um, unless you're just paying off the balance of your card and you shouldn't go above 30%. So 10 to 30 is ideal. Those are the three main areas that affect and build your credit score. So yeah, if you have $10,000 in total credit between those two credit cards, you should really try your best to spend like $1,500 on one and $1,500 on the other every month. 
True. It's really, that's quite a strategic thing. Like that's getting a little bit deep, but you know, all experts talk about that utilization rate of maximum 30% because then the credit bureaus will look and they'll see if you only ever got, and this is again, so if you only ever had one credit card you sh- and you're using that like all the way till the max almost every month, like that's not a good credit strategy. You should, you should actually go out and apply for a second credit card. So you're using them both. Um, within that 10 to 30% range, because otherwise it looks like to the creditors, if you have only one card that's $10,000, say instead of having two, you had just one, Mm -hmm. if you're using that one to like 8,000 a month or 6,000 a month to the credit bureaus, it looks like you're using almost all your available credit and you're at like a, a breaking point. And they're like, oh, well, why doesn't this person have any more available credit? Why are they almost at the max? So it makes it look kind of deceivingly like you've maybe been denied other options for credit, but you've just never tried. So yeah, if you only have one card or something, go try and you're using it more than that 30%, go get yourself another card and then just use them both and pay them both off. That's really good advice. Um, And then for just talking about like quarantine, so we're going to kind of go into two parts. So the advice you have for people that are financially struggling right now, talking about how to like cut down your expenses and things like that. Yeah. So definitely, I mean, go to your landlords, go to the cable company, internet, like water, whatever you pay for, ask them. Most of them from what I've heard are not actually eliminating bills or decreasing your amount. You can ask, you know, if, you, if they have a new promo, you can go on for your cell phone or your cable. Um, if not, though, they are 100%. All of them now are deferring payments till September. And that goes with student um, government loans as well. If you have private loans from for your student debt, from a banking or like a private institution, you need to call them directly and ask them, but I'm sure that they are all doing it now as well. And then when it comes to your credit cards, like if you have credit card debt, so interest owed on your balance, people are, can definitely negotiate that down. So that's where you can legit just like save money of charges you've already incurred on that interest charge. Mm -hmm. And then you can, for sure, like if your interest rate is 23% on a card, you can negotiate with them over the phone to get that brought down to 18%. But those interest amounts or those interest percentages on credit cards should never really matter if you're paying your balance off in full every month as you should be doing. So obviously that's the goal for most people. But like 73% of this country has credit card debt. So if you have credit card debt, like there's no shame at all. You're the majority. Um, Like I, and this is obviously my field. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a minority in that case. So there's no shame in that. And I love like when I talk to my friends or talk to people on podcasts or other influencers and stuff like that, where they're like, yeah, I still have like 10 grand left to pay off on like a couple cards. And I'm like, you know, what's crazy is that people that are successful, not even just seemingly successful online, but they are successful online. They just haven't like wrapped together the strategies yet of how to manage the cash flow. And I'm like, it's so nice that you say that to me, but I wish that like in a private conversation, but I'm like, I wish more people would actually just talk about that because it's the same thing as like mental illnesses or anything that there's a stigma attached to or shame attached to. It's like when other people can look at, at people that they think of as mentors or role models and just say, you know what, like she may, she might be an amazing personal trainer and a fitness influencer and in the wellness space, but she has like credit card debt. Like I do too. Like, I feel like that really helps people be like, okay, it's okay. 
but you know, I can get out of this. I can get to a better place where I don't have to worry about that because, you know, credit card debt, any kind of debt is so hard on people mentally and sleep. And, you know, it's also makes it harder to take risks, like taking up a side gig or being a freelancer gig economy, because you're like, Oh, I've got that debt. Like I need my job. I need the paycheck every two weeks. So debt really holds people back. It does. And I like that you, it's true what you said, that it is a stigma. I mean, like any, any conversation around money, even like when you're with your friends and like, you're talking about like, who's paying for what it's always gets so uncomfortable. So I feel like, you know, that's a conversation people need to be less scared about. And so just be yeah. about it. Cause that's how you're going to get to those answers that you've been searching for how to pay off that debt. Yeah. Um, because everybody tries to like, especially in the world of social media, it's all about like keeping up with the Joneses. Like, oh, like, yeah, I'm like living this certain lifestyle, but when reality, you probably should not be buying that car or going on that vacation, so-and-so. So it's yeah. just, yeah, being more um, transparent. But- I know what they say too. So I don't know if you know um, who Julie, do you know who Julie Solomon is? I don't. She's, she's like um, a social influencer, like courses. And have you heard of Amy Porterfield? or yeah, Marie Forleo, yeah. like they're kind of like the three of them are kind of like these, uh, or Jenna Kutcher, I guess there's four that are kind of like these big business course, online business course mastering. And, um, I was listening to Julie Solomon's podcast and this is so true because every girl that I know is like this and I, I'm being so mean or maybe not mean, whatever. I'm, yeah. I'm just saying it. Yeah. So on her podcast and everyone I've noticed too, that are like the big fashion influencers, Julie Solomon says that 99% of them, because she used to manage influencers in that sector, um, 99% of them come from very wealthy families or have a very wealthy husband that just simply supports the lifestyle look and does the, they pay the photographers from the beginning. They buy the clothes from the beginning. They don't need a full-time job on the side. So they have all the time of the day to do the glam and do the outfits. And it's like, Again, yeah, that's not real life. Those people didn't, like those women that you might see or men, they didn't just like buy that vacation to Positano because they can afford to pay for it because they're an influencer. Like, no, someone just, someone else paid for it. So like, yeah, don't even fall into the trap of the social media stuff. It's so ridiculous. And most of the people that are influencers, you might not actually want to be influenced by. Yeah. And I'm not going to name names, but I already have, I already know names in my head for, I knew for a fact they grew up very wealthy. And the fact that like, they have had this lifestyle handed to them, not saying that they don't work at their job, but they definitely didn't have it like other people have it. So yeah, they're not, you know, of course they're spending tons of time creating content and stuff now, which is all admirable, but they didn't get there and they didn't, they didn't get the lifestyle that you're seeing in the photos because of that work. They've got that lifestyle in the photos because of other means. So yeah. No, grain of salt. Important. Um, and then what about some of like the benefits you feel like, I know we talked about this, like the benefits that can come out of a time like this, like you talked about an emergency fund that you should save up for things like that. Yeah. I mean, this is such a good time right now for companies and individuals to really be assessing like, okay, what is my monthly expenses? What is what I used to consider my needs are now actually some of those you might realize are wants because you're at home and all you really need is food, shelter, water and love. And you might realize that a lot of the things you used to consider needs like your monthly spending on shopping or entertainment, um, that we're all finding newer, cheaper ways of entertainment and having drinks with each other from home and 
all, you know, having friends over family over that is also isolating, um, to a certain extent. So I won't go into the politics of all that, but yeah, I mean, I think people are really realizing how you can live leaner and invest and save more, keep more in that, you know, emergency cash cushion that you have in a, a high interest savings account online somewhere. Um, and you should keep it there instead of in your regular account, because if you use someone like Ally, not affiliated with them, I just can't think of any others off the top of my head right now. Um, but, you know, use one of those online high interest savings accounts. If you go to bankrate.com, actually, you can just type in like savings accounts or online bank accounts, best rates. And they bring up like full lists of like 50 different online accounts. And then you can just sort them by interest rate. So that's a great place to keep like your extra cash that you're not going to invest. And yeah, three to nine months is really good. Three months for people that have a really, really steady, regular full-time job. They're not that worried about losing their job right now and all those types of things. But for people that are in a tougher situation or they've already been laid off and you don't know when you're going to have full-time income again, yeah, cut back as many of the expenses as you can, put as much cash on the side as you can to get to that you know, six months, nine months of savings. And if you can like change your living situation, get rid of your apartment, move in with a roommate, get a subletter, like go live. If you can, like if your parents are anywhere near or able to, you know, go stay with your parents for six months or a year. Like seriously, there's no shame. I've done that before myself um, for different reasons. And sometimes it's nice and you can save so much money. And if you want to move back to New York or, you know, another city later, I'm telling you, I'm sure there will be lots of availability of apartments come fall this year. Right. No, I've even been like living at home right now. And unfortunately I'm still paying a rent, but I'm like, wow. I'm like, why am I not doing this now? I would be saving so much money. Um, even little, if I could get out of my place right now, I would. Yeah. that's percent. And like you said with the workout thing, like I, you know, I, prior to this, I was paying for an Equinox gym membership. Equinox is very expensive. And I'm beginning to realize like, wow, I really don't need to spend all that money on a gym membership. I know. And you know, I'm actually like, I, I feel for those businesses too, because yeah a lot of people are going to realize that they can live without Equinox. I feel bad. They're kind of a target. They've been used as the New York example, many podcasts I've been on recently, yeah. but, um, but yeah, a lot of people are going to realize they don't need all the frills that they used to think of as their regular needed monthly expenses. Yeah. It's really true. Um, also just talking about like the brand you've built, which I think is, you know, separate from finance. I think that, you know, you have, I tell people all the time that when it comes to branding, like in college, I wrote an entire thesis on personal branding, how no matter what industry you're in, it's whether you're a doctor, whether you are in the fashion world, whatever it is, it really can help you open, you know, new doors, which will lead to new opportunities. So how do you feel like, you know, you really having a voice in the industry has like helped you? Well, I, I think it's always evolving as well. I'm definitely more off the cuff than I was at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and different environments for different things. Like I'm not going to be talking crap about my industry or like cursing on CNBC Squawk Box. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong audience. But um, but yeah, I think it's it's obviously opened up tons of media opportunities for me which is new income and um, new contacts, new clients. I always say the biggest thing with branding yourself personally or kind of making yourself an expert in your field, no matter your field is knitting, animals, finance, or fashion or whatever, um, I think that 
creating a brand for yourself just opens up opportunities and in, in new contacts, new people. And your network is your net worth a hundred percent. So yeah. like, that's what I'm missing most right now is like my favorite conference of the year. The salt conference is in Vegas and it's the biggest hedge fund managers, billionaire investors, and just the moment that's where I met Steve Harvey a few years ago and just like the craziest people. And I love just like watching the the talks on that stage. Like last year, actually personal, um, Scooter Braun, he talked about personal branding and like, um, you know, he, he found Justin Bieber or whatever. And, oh, Billie Eilish. That's who he talked about last year and how she went from this like 13 year old in Australia, I think is where she's from to being like this mega superstar in like a matter of a short few months because of online, because the opportunities on social and branding and, you know, how she kind of went viral with her voice. And before you used to have to record um, an album and then you had to have a release party and then you had to tour everywhere opening for someone like there's so, and that's just an example of the music industry. You can create a brand for yourself now online in a very short period of time using everything that's available to us through technology. So again, it just gives you more and more contacts and opportunities and people able to see the value that you have to give to the world and the problems that you can help solve. So it's a lot of work. Like for three years, I have been doing what I have been doing in, you know, interviews, my book, social media, and investing a lot of time and money in it. And I'm just starting to really monetize that now. But, um, but it's, it's brought lots of other opportunities as well. Like I have had clients from it and, you know, like a prime example actually is even right at the beginning of this, I don't think my book, no, my book had just come out, but like nobody knew who I was or anything yet. Mm -hmm. And some, some random CEO of a real estate development company, like messaged me on LinkedIn and was like, Hey, I saw, I saw your Facebook. Um, and it seems like you wrote a book and you're just starting to do some, some really impressive like media around that. And I had done like maybe a handful of interviews or something. Um, now, now I've done literally hundreds and before I did a handful and yeah, messaged me on LinkedIn. I saw this on Facebook and, um, you know, obviously you're really good at marketing for financial companies. Do you think that you could market like new developments for real estate? And so I started creating like websites and, you know, signage, marketing materials, everything for pre-sales for luxury condo and townhouse developments. So a whole new sector of clients for me. And let me tell you, no offense to anybody in real estate, but it is a hell of a lot easier to market a penthouse and all the finishes of a beautiful like ocean mountain view penthouse yeah. than it is to talk about a hedge fund strategy being exciting and, and all of that. So yeah, yeah. I welcomed the opportunity and, and yeah, just prime example. Like you never know who's watching you when you're creating great content and trying to give back and doing all that through personal branding online. Right. And you, and you already said it, you really never know what the net, where your next opportunity is coming from. For you, it came from writing a book and then writing that book led to this interview here and then that client there. And so I just tell people like, keep going. Like, even if you're scared, so what? Like, I remember I had a professor say to me in college, like, you know, have these goals reach so high that even if you don't get to where you want to be, you'll be higher than where you had not reached that high. So, yeah. you know, so and there's so many examples of that, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe we're not where we want to be right now, but thank goodness we're not where we used to be. And I can say that about almost every stage of my life. And that's also why I wrote the book too. And um, if you get a chance to read it, or if your audience get a chance to read it, like there's a lot of stories in there. I wrote that book. <laughs> 
I don't actually know if I've ever said this on a podcast before, but, or any interview. I told <laughs> friends though, I wrote that book legitimately when I was just under over a million dollar lawsuit, like the whole book. This is three summers ago. Wow. And I had been away at a conference and this, you know, situation happened, came back to, to Vancouver and I was like, holy fuck. And I had already agreed to write the book with the publishers and I was supposed to start writing the book introduction and then chapter one and, you know, one chapter every week after that throughout the 12 weeks of summer. And this was like the end of May and I was supposed to start writing the book June 1st. And I wrote this entire book under the threat of being like bankrupt and done for. So mentally I had to put myself in a place of like, okay, Liana, you know, this stuff, you can get through this and, and you're going to make it. I, I wrote a little bit about it in the book. I think probably in like around chapter eight or chapter nine, when I talk about like getting through the tough stuff, because a lot of those things really set people back financially too, in their mindset. And, you know, just in life, like if you, you know, I've had to pay for a lot of crazy stuff, like, you know, car accidents out of pocket, um, house floods, insurance stuff. Like I've had to pay for, you know, a lot of things happen. And sometimes, you know, when those big emergency savings account things go down like five, $10,000 or, you know, you lost all the money from a trip that the airline canceled it and blah, you know, whatever, you can't get your money back. People get bogged down by those things, but you just have to keep going because I mean, I, I, my friends now say that in the last three years, so much has happened to me. They're like, your next book, you have to write another one just fully about personal stories. But, um, but that's also why I wrote the book three years ago. Cause I was already going through crazy stuff because yeah. I take a lot of it is because I had taken big risks when I was young to get big rewards, like moving to London, moving to London with like four days notice of this new job. And like, I had to live in an Airbnb for two months and I spent like 10,000 pounds and I was like, (laughs) but I, I was working so much and like apartments, if anybody knows London, it's actually harder than New York. Like 50 people will show up to the first day open of a studio. And it's like two o'clock in the afternoon, the open. And you're like, I'm at a new job at work. There's no way I can make it to that and be one of the 50 other people in their 20s trying to get a studio in the city. Yeah. Like less than crazy, crazy money. And I think it's not. So, yeah. And even like just goes to show you the fact that you were able to get through hard times like that and what a strong mindset you have to have to be able to be dealing with something so heavy like that and still taking on a new project. Like like you said, your parents, like they didn't like give you everything. They're like, listen, you want to go live on your own. You're getting kicked out at like whatever, 18 years old, (laughs) whatever, whatever age it was. But, you know, I think it's important the fact that like don't hand your kids everything really. And even if you do have money, like, take that job, you know, learn how to make your own money and learn how to invest properly. Um, and so it really, it prepares you for life. Um, so, well, luckily at that time, my dad did provide me with the contact for his business psychologist, which was actually really cool experience. It was like a therapist for entrepreneurs. And I, I loved it because, you know, at that time he was like, Hey, you really have to. And I think all entrepreneurs or people that have side gigs need to do this. Like my personal life and 
my house and this, this crazy lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And like, I was at risk of losing everything. I'm like, I'm going to lose my career because how can I be a a financial expert if I have to claim like bankruptcy because of this million and a half dollars? Like, how can I write this book? How can I do all these things in my business and my house is going to, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to have nothing. Well, it was all getting wrapped up. And this guy's like, listen, you need to, if you're going to work for yourself in any capacity, side gig or full on entrepreneur, you need to compartmentalize. This is a business issue. That's your business. You keep that aside. What are you working on in your personal life? Do you have a relationship? Is that something that you need to work on? Because if you're so worried about the other funnel of life, you're probably ignoring your relationship. And you might need to get that a little bit more work and your family. And then there's the other part. Yeah, there's a third part of your life, like your family and your, per- and you know, maybe your personal interests. Like, are you running enough? Are you going out for bike rides like you used to? Like, how else, you know, how can you compartmentalize your life and your brain so that the one area that's really struggling and having trouble right now doesn't kibosh everything else? Because, and that's really what I learned from him. And I was like, you know what? You're right. If this all blows up and goes south, yes, that will hurt. But I still have the love of someone else. I still have the love of my family. And, you know, you really have to, it, it was really good for me to, to go through that exercise with him. I think that's like an awesome way to like close it. But just so, just as a fun question to end it, like what are some of the, like the fun ways you're keeping your mental health in check? Some things you're trying, just like some fun. <laughs> I don't know why are this just came to that mind, but this is like a very real moment. So yeah. <laughs> I actually don't even want to admit it because it's really embarrassing, but I will because I just don't care about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about embarrassing myself that much. So I'm like one of my only friends that I know that I've never downloaded a dating app or anything, but like the last two, like at all, never downloaded one. And the last two months. So now I'm, I'm good at being obviously really independent, always traveling everywhere by myself, um, living by myself for like over a decade. But the last two months, all of a sudden I was like feeling really lonely and um, I had a, a long-term relationship on and off. He passed away almost two years ago, really suddenly. And it was kind of strange how this last two months really brought me back to that like super lonely, like grief time almost two years ago, like before I moved to New York mm-hmm. and made that big change in my life. And I was like, oh, you know, I just like, I'm starting to feel really lonely and it's like really bringing up some bad like memories and just like reminders of the past. And then my friend was like, just do it. Like, just like talk to, just find some guys to talk to. And it's not been successful so far because I really did download Bumble for one one day, for one day. And I don't know, maybe I'm just like, so not used to the day. Like I haven't dated a long time. So I, I was just like swiping left on everyone. And like, I'm like, you know, I'm such an in-person person person that I'm like, you know what? Like, unless there's some supermodel guy on here, which maybe I'd swipe right just for the fun of it. Every guy I've dated, like they've never been David Beckham or like Cristiano Ronaldo. Like, so how can I, I just, I don't know. I wasn't getting like, oh, he's so funny. And so, you know, I wasn't getting those vibes off of these pictures. So then I just deleted it. So it was kind of unsuccessful, but I'm trying, I'm trying new things. I know. 
That's good. I literally was on Hinge. I think I downloaded it for two days. And I said, I, my friends were like, I'm, they, they were forcing me. And I was like, I literally can't do this. It's like, I'm shopping for a person and I, I can't. So yeah, in the same way. Yeah, that's what I don't like. And you know, I know that's obviously not the experience for everyone. Right. My other friends, they were like, no, don't you bumble. You have to Hinge. I'm like, listen, yeah. this took me like a long time just to like download it for one night. And I already kind of, I'm not into it, but they said Hinge is better. So yeah. Maybe in like another two weeks, once I feel very lonely again, I will do it. But for now, honestly, the beach and the water, like the trails and like all these new things to do in um, Montauk and driving around the Hamptons is really reviving my my mindset. So it's been great. Yeah. So awesome. You are so cool. I actually think I like this conversation better than the first one. And we opened up, I think like later in the evening and like we opened up more. Um, I know. I need wine in this glass instead of water. I know. I was just about to say we should have started with wine, but thanks so much for coming on. Next time. um, (laughs) Bye guys. Have a good one.